0: This is Womanhood. Welcome to Womanhood, a podcast created to empower and give voice to all women's experiences, which are typically stigmatized and silenced in society. I'm your host, Mimi Healy. Hi, welcome to the Womanhood Podcast. Thank you for joining me today for our new Wednesday episode. I wanted to transition to Wednesdays because I just felt like it would be a better time to release episodes instead of Friday evenings, and hopefully this can be your little informative midweek pick-me-up womanhood wednesday woo um if you're new to the podcast then welcome this used to be released on fridays but now it's on wednesdays today i am beyond thrilled to be introducing our guest dr rashmi kudasia dr kudasia is a board certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist at ccrm fertility houston I am so, so excited to be speaking with Dr. Kudasia because I actually initially started the Womanhood Podcast with the hopes of focusing on women's health care and talking about health concerns which might be stigmatized in society, but the podcast went down a wonderful path of talking to so many diverse and buried interesting women and hearing their stories which I'm so grateful for but I'm super pumped to have Dr. Rashmi Kudesia on today because she is my dream guest talking about health care and women's health I think it is so, so important to talk about women's health and to be informed about not only your body, but the larger system which affects how your body is taken care of through policy and political systems. This episode is a bit statistic heavy, but I think it is such important information, and I hope you can learn something by listening to this. Also, I just wanted to say quickly that I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy and continues to wear a mask, continues to social distance, and continues to do things that make you happy, even in these more solitude-heavy times. Thank you so much for listening.
1: in Michigan I was born in Chicago so I'm originally a Midwesterner um, and I grew up in Michigan um, and then kind of did a whole loop of the East Coast um, for school and training and then I was in New York City for almost 10 years for my residency in obstetrics and gynecology um, followed by my fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility Um, and then I joined um, the faculty at Mount Sinai School of Medicine for a couple years before moving down to Houston which is where my from um, and am now a uh, reproductive endocrinologist here at CCRM Fertility Houston um, and uh, yeah I've been here for a little bit over two two and a half years and uh, absolutely love it.
0: Dr. Kudesia is a fellow of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and an active member of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, Society for Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, Androgen Excess and Polycystic Ovary Syndrome Society, and American Medical Association. Dr. Kudesia's current areas of focus include improving in vitro fertilization cycle prognosis, polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS, LGBTQ fertility, fertility awareness, counseling, and access to care. Dr. Kudasia is a huge advocate for reproductive empowerment, which is women receiving empathetic, patient-centered health care that gives them the knowledge they need to make informed choices about their bodies hashtag reproductive empowerment spread it around use the hashtag on all your social medias the first question that I always ask guests is what do you love about being a woman or what do you love or find inspiration in through identifying with the experience of womanhood and you can just take that however you'd like
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think there are so many ways I could answer that question, um, truly. Um, But I think that right now, kind of in 2020, what, what I find so fascinating is sort of the ability as a woman to access kind of the full range of kind of our emotions, our strengths, our ambitions and goals, and I, you know, I just think it's it's really fascinating that, you know, as a woman, um, you know, I can sort of you know, fulfill my professional desires. I can be a mom. I can be a wife. You know, and I can be alongside women um, choosing. You know, anything alongside those spectrums. And I think it's it's just really fascinating because I feel like societally, men are actually in some ways emotionally more constrained and and feel a lot of pressure um, to be certain ways or you know whatever. I think it's actually interesting how things have developed. And and so for me, I just feel really empowered. I have a daughter who's about to turn one-year-old, one and um, mm-hmm. so I just feel really excited about, despite, you know, all the misogyny that's still out there and all of the barriers that are definitely still there, but despite all of that, I just feel that, you know, it's it's an exciting time to be a woman because I feel like anything that you want to do is is out there to be done, and, um, you know, like I said, it really can range on anywhere along sort of the spectrum of your, you know, kind of goals and desires and ambitions, and I, I just think that that's so liberating.
0: hmm yeah definitely I I couldn't agree more congratulations also you're like a new mom that's so exciting yes it, it
1: is and it really I think you know, just kind of uh, amplifies uh, all of the the things that we think about, you know, when it comes to womanhood. I I think, you know, certainly I I think it's so fascinating what we're able to, you know, achieve biologically. And um, I think that's such an amazing experience. Um, But for many of my fertility patients, you know, I think that's, it becomes the source of a big identity crisis when it feels like, you know, to define womanhood around our biological ability to do certain things, I think is, is just probably not a very fair, fair, Uh, framework to talk about Mm -hmm. um and so like I said I really I I tend to focus more on you know things that we can all access around our you know our dreams and our ambitions and and don't really have to do with our biology
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and that's such an empowering and like a great way to uplift women instead of yeah like bring them down from just biological reproductive uh societal expectations um (laughs) totally yeah, and going kind of into that more. So, you're a reproductive endocrinologist. Um, can you explain, kind of, for someone who may not know what that is, like what you specialize in and what your job entails?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, being a reproductive endocrinologist is kind of a subspecialty of obstetrics and gynecology. It's an additional three years of training um, focused around the reproductive hormones um, and fertility. And so what that means in my day-to-day is really related to women and couples um, that are thinking about um, kind of preserving their future fertility, growing their family, um, or, you know, maybe managing um, complicated reproductive issues like polycystic ovary syndrome or other aberrations, um, you know, related to the reproductive hormones um, in the menstrual cycle, basically. So um, yeah, in in short, that's, that's basically what my day to day is.
0: Okay, cool. With infertility, do you uh, kind of like specialize with miscarriages as well? Or is that kind of a different specialty?
1: No, that's a good point. So we do do that as well. So anybody that, you know, has had um, recurrent miscarriages, which we usually define as two or more, um, there's kind of a particular evaluation that we do as it relates to that. And um, yeah, that definitely, um, great point, uh, falls under the fertility rubric.
0: Oh, okay, cool. I wanted to provide you all with some statistics about miscarriage and infertility. Um, About 10% of women in the United States, ages 15 to 44, have difficulty getting pregnant or staying pregnant, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. I can personally attest that I know plenty of people, both family and friends, who have had trouble getting or staying pregnant. I'm sure everyone knows at least one person. Um, 10% is quite a large number. So that's why it's really important that people can have access to someone like Dr. Kudasia and receive adequate health care. For some miscarriage information, um, I found that Dr. Kudasia was talking about recurrent miscarriages, which is two or more, and um According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, about 5% of women have two or more consecutive miscarriages and 1% will have three or more. According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, about 60% of all recurrent miscarriages are a result of a genetic abnormality. As a woman ages, the risk of miscarriage due to genetic abnormalities increases from 15 to 20% if she is under the age of 35. And if she is over the age of 40, this risk goes up to more than 50%. But there is good news. Nearly two-thirds of women who have recurrent miscarriages will eventually carry a full-term healthy pregnancy, often without treatment. I would love to talk more about polycystic ovary syndrome. The second episode of Womanhood was about PCOS, and as September is PCOS Awareness Month, I am interested to hear what misconceptions you've heard surrounding infertility and PCOS.
1: Yeah, so I think, um, you know, PCOS is um, one of the areas or one of the diagnoses with kind of the most um, I think misconceptions around it Um, you know whether it's because it can show up in so many um, different ways there's so many different manifestations of it you know every woman with PCOS kind of has her own unique uh, combination of of things that are going on Um, I find that there's just a lot of sort of misinformation out there I guess Um, and so you know fortunately um, for women that you know sort of are trying to grow their family you know at kind of peak reproductive ages kind of up uh, through the mid thirties, um, you know, PCOS is actually one of the easier things that we have to treat from a fertility perspective, actually one of the higher prognoses, um, diagnoses. And so, um, oh. so I would say that, um, you know, some of the misconceptions are that, um, you know, well, I actually have a lot of patients that were told they would never have children or that it would be incredibly difficult, which always breaks my heart a little bit, um, because that mm. is totally incorrect. Um, I hear a lot of concern that people think that they will have to do IVF, you know, or have some very expensive fertility treatment, Mm -hmm. um, which is not necessarily required either. Um, You know, I hear, um, you know, those are probably the biggest ones. And I think a lot of those prevent people from even coming in to seek care, which is really sad. Um, But I I definitely want uh, women to be hopeful about it because I think that, You know, by addressing um, PCOS, you know, preemptively from, you know, a young age, you know, when you get the diagnosis on forward, not only can we possibly mitigate some of the fertility um, challenges, but, you know, we can also make sure that, you know, you achieve your your healthy pregnancies at the right age and sort of in the right way um, that will kind of optimize, um, you know, great obstetric outcomes. So on the whole, you know, we can have really healthy pregnancies with PCOS, but the way to do that is really just through kind of picking the right treatments. And maximizing, you know, kind of general health principles, um, you know, in terms of our lifestyle and making sure that, you know, we have kind of getting all of the nutrients we need, we're on a prenatal vitamin, you know, all of the good stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to really achieve the healthiest pregnancy possible.
0: I wanted to talk about access to care and adequate care. What have yeah. you experienced as a doctor and seen in your patients with regard to the lack of access to adequate care in reproductive health?
1: Yeah. So that is a, you know, huge problem. Um, You know, it is definitely true that in this country, you know, a minority, so 15% of of straight couples will experience infertility. And you can add to that, you know, all of the, um, you know, LGBT families, all of the single women that decide to come in and start families. And honestly, we've started to even see a few single, men that have come in and said hey I want to be a dad and like how can I do that which is which is really cool Um, so you know so if you add together sort of all of the individuals or couples that might seek fertility or reproductive care um, that um, that sort of the proportion of people that have access from a cost and insurance coverage perspective is definitely a minority Um, and even worse you know there's definitely disparities along the lines of obviously of socioeconomic status but also you know sort of of race and ethnicity mm-hmm. um and so you know i think that um you know that's really sad um and in other countries where there is kind of like better coverage for or even within this country it's very state uh, based and so some states do have a mandated coverage for fertility treatment um and so you know you just see totally different levels of access and and ability to kind of you know fully grow one's families based on that sort of arbitrary policies that are put in place by the government. And so, um, you know, that, that is really um, sad. And so I think access to care is a an issue. And then access to sort of the right counseling is even a larger issue because many times, um, you know, women will see a OBGYN or a primary care doctor or some other healthcare provider and, you know, maybe not get appropriate counseling about their fertility, about, you know, issues that are relevant, whether they have, you know, fibroids or PCOS or whatever. I mean, I, I have to... Sort sort of correct, you know, things that were told to people improperly almost every day. And so, wow. um, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions around fertility. For most physicians, fertility is not a big part of their training. And so, um, and things change so rapidly. We have a really um, technologically advanced field and things keep changing. And so um, I think that, you know, not only is there the access to getting in and, and kind of pursuing certain treatments, but I do think there's a lot of misinformation out there, just like we were speaking about with PCOS, and um, and that's really sad, because I, I think, um, you know, people deserve to at least have the correct information, um, and I think that's why, you know, not only myself, but a number of my colleagues, you know, are on social media, because, mm-hmm. you know, you realize that you can really um, access a lot of people um, that way, you know, that otherwise may not have the ability to, uh, to get reliable information.
0: Mm-hmm why do you think this lack of information and these misconceptions are so prevalent in society? Well I
1: think that you know in general our healthcare system you know doesn't really focus on on wellness Um, and so you know, I think it's, uh, there's two answers to that. I think one is that, you know, in general, even when it comes to a healthy lifestyle, you know, I mean, our dietary advice that we receive in this country is often filtered through, you know, the lens of things, studies that have been done by the food lobby and, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, the dietary advice we've received in this country has been very incorrect and inaccurate at, at times. And so, I think, you know, um, and there's not really a national commitment to people being able to access healthy local foods or have safe spaces to exercise, um, and, you know, it's different than, than you see in other parts of the world. So I think that's one piece of it, because our reproductive health is just one part of our general health, and when we have higher rates of obesity and, you know, poor health and, you know, all of these things that shows up in our our reproductive health just as much as anything else. So I think one thing is that it's a symptom of a larger problem in our system. Um, But then the other piece of it is, you know, as relates to women's health, right? And so, you know, women's health is an area that also in this country has become highly politicized, um, Mm. you know, where, you know, certain things, um, Somehow, are you know things that we shouldn't be talking about, or um, that you know there's there's kind of a lot of governmental decisions. You know, the government mm-hmm. decides: do you get coverage for your fertility care or not? Does um, your birth control covered or not? Um, can you have a pregnancy termination or not? You know, and that is also a unique aspect of healthcare in the U.S. Um, and uh, you know, fertility care is just part of the larger rubric of women's healthcare. And so, I think you know to the extent that women's healthcare is not focused on, I mean, we can see that in terms of, you know, how many um, NIH funded trials include women or include pregnant women, Mm. Um, you know, things like that. There are a lot of ways in which um, the health of of women is not uh, prioritized in this country. Um, And so I think you can definitely see it from that lens as well.
0: Dr. Kudasia touched on access to care and how incredibly important it is that all women have adequate access to health care, especially maternal health care. In the United States alone, there is a huge disparity between other industrialized nations. The United States, although boasting that we have one of the best healthcare systems, actually has the highest rate of maternal mortality in any industrialized nation. The most disparity in mortality rates in the U.S. is defined by race. Unfortunately, black women die at a rate that ranges. 3 to 5 times the rate of their white counterparts. This equates out to about 41 deaths per 100,000 births among black women versus only 13 deaths per 100,000 live births among white women. Unfortunately, American Indian and Alaskan Native women also fare worse than white women with approximately twice as many pregnancy-related deaths per 100,000 live births. Women of color tend to have less access to high-quality, thorough, reproductive health information and services than white women, and they are typically discriminated against in the healthcare system or experience higher rates of disrespect and abuse. Maternal mortality varies by socioeconomic status and geography. Living in poverty, having less access to care, not having adequate health care or even health care at all, or living in certain states which might policy-wise or politically restrict access to care or restrict abortion rights and things like that can severely affect women. Something that I saw you post about was um, mental health and Black maternal health, Um, and I saw that you wrote about weathering, and I was wondering if you could, like, tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I think for the longest time, you know, people have looked at this issue and said, well, you know black women in the U.S. are more likely to have weight issues, they're more likely to have blood pressure issues, they're more likely to have fibroids and so therefore they just have forced complications and I feel there is a really judgmental tone in general to a lot of the conversation around racial disparities. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the reality is that many of these things as relates to obstetric complications um, do come down to kind of stress on the body. And the concept of weathering is just this notion that kind of the daily macro and microaggressions of living in a you know, biased and racist society have take a toll essentially on the body. Um, Mm. and, um, and that, that adds up over time um, and that that stress may contribute to, um, you know, from a physiologic perspective, higher stress hormone levels do contribute to poor healthy choices, you know, poor health choices to, um, you know, to weight gain, to blood pressure issues, et cetera. And so, you know, rather than um, propagating a, a framework wherein we blame, um, you know, certain groups of women for, you know, Having essentially brought things upon themselves, mm-hmm. um, you know, which seems to me really a, a gross distortion of the reality. I think the idea of weathering and of really diving deep onto the um, racial disparities in maternal morbidity and mortality um, are not going to be successful unless and until we accept that you know there is kind of a larger systemic issue at play, and um, you know that there is just a lot more that you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color are dealing with um, than, you know, than than people that don't fall into that category.
0: Mm -hmm. And how would you recommend that people of color advocate for their own health care and well-being?
1: So that's a great question. And, um, you know, it's definitely a challenge. So I think, you know, what it comes down to is that people, and I think women, um, really have to be uh, unafraid of advocating for themselves and for realizing, you know, how they can do so. Um, and I think, so the first thing is to state the reality. And I think, you know, I, I think I said it pretty bluntly. Um, and I hope that, you know, women can understand that first of all, you know, they can find physicians that understand this reality. There are a lot of us out there. Um, and I think, you know, I often will, will address this with some of my black moms, you know, like, okay, you know, you may be feeling, Worried about your risks as we plan pregnancy? You know, here's what we're going to do to minimize your risks. Right. So first of all, mm-hmm. it's finding the right healthcare team, and part of how you do that um, is being as informed as you can about your own body. Right. You're always the expert on yourself, and don't let anybody let you feel otherwise. The best way to become the expert on yourself, um, and this is true for all women, um, is to start by really tracking your cycles and kind of knowing what's going on with your body. Um, and at the minimum, that means kind of under understanding when you bleed, how much you're bleeding, any symptoms that you have, pain, etc., cetera. Um, and so that when you go into the physician's office, you're able to say, hey, you know, I my concern is that I bleed every day. 20 days that doesn't seem normal to me or that when I have my period I go through 10 super plus tampons a day that doesn't seem normal to me and I think you know that is really what helps um you know kind of uh helps you to advocate for yourself the best and to know that if you feel that your experience is being dismissed that you know you you deserve it, you owe it to yourself to seek a second opinion. Um, And part of that is, you know, through looking at the hospital uh, that your care is associated with, because, you know, definitely um, there is a non-accidental segregation of, you know, people of color into, you know, certain areas where the, you know, hospitals may not, um, you know, have the same outcomes as in more wealthy areas. Um, Mm -hmm. And so same thing, you know, is kind of seeking out, you know, where the hospitals that have the best obstetric outcomes or have you know what's the fertility clinic that has the best success rates etc and seeking care at those places um and being unafraid to um to advocate for yourself in all of those ways and so i think you know it's just uh time and again we hear these stories of women um you know being dismissed whether they're reporting you know pain or whatever symptoms like the serena williams story i think you know reached Mm. a lot of people um and i was think was a very good example of you know kind of how you know she was so specific right she said you know these are the symptoms i had when i had blood clots in the past you know this is what i think is happening this is what i think i need i need a ct scan i need this blood work i mean she Mm -hmm. was informed enough to be able to say all of these things and um you know i think that that's a big part
0: of it so if you don't know i'll tell you a little bit about the serena williams background serena williams is a black tennis player i'm sure everyone has heard of but she gave birth and had a pulmonary embolism which is a condition in which one or more arteries in the lungs becomes blocked by a blood clot so serena williams had to have a c-section and she had this pulmonary embolism and she knew that something wasn't right she fell off she listened to her body and she said i am not feeling well and then next thing she knows a c-section wound popped open during her coughing that was a result of the embolism so she went to the doctor returned to surgery where the doctors actually found a large hematoma which is a swelling of clotted blood in her abdomen she then went back to the operating room for a procedure that prevents clots from traveling to her lungs she finally made it home and had to spend the first six weeks of motherhood in bed Luckily, Serena Williams knew her health complications and she knew when her body didn't feel right. Make sure to be vocal when you don't think something feels right. It is your body and you know what is right for your body.
1: Oftentimes, I see people come in and they'll tell me like, oh, I think I had a surgery like five years ago and I'm not sure what they did exactly. You know, that should, mm. that should never happen to you. You should never, you know, ha- you should never agree to have a surgery that you don't understand what's going to be done. Um, and afterwards, I, I strongly recommend people to consider getting the records of those things so that if you move, um, you know, maybe you don't understand exactly, you know, all of the lingo, but then you have your records so that a future doctor can look at that and say, oh, okay, you had a fibroid that was removed or a cyst on your ovary or whatever Mm. and um, I think that really is helpful because I can't tell you how often people come in and and they say well I was told something but I I really don't know what that was and you know it was 10 years ago when I lived in a different state and um, you know now I can't get the records so I think some of those are like my tips for how you really stay kind of the advocate of your own health and, and the keeper of your own health because ultimately you know it's it's you know, for each of us, um, you know how our health is gonna go, and uh, you know we have to really be our own best advocate,
0: mhm, yeah, definitely, and I've found one thing too that's in the very beginning of advocating for your own health, like as a young you know teen who's going into puberty and starting their period, there's so much uh like shame and stigma around that that it's hard to find resources that will openly talk about that. Do you have any like advice on? where to go for uh, adequate resources for kind of younger people.
1: Yeah, so I think it depends, you know, what exactly um, people are looking for. So, you know, there are a lot of medical organizations that try to have, um, you know, kind of information that is geared towards, you know, patients that are trying to learn. Um, so, like, for example, for contraception, um, you know, there is a, a website that's uh, it's called Bedsider, mm-hmm. um, you know, and um, they really kind of break down contraception, I think, in a way that's really friendly to young women. Um, I think a lot of the period tracking Apps, I personally use Clue, and um, I think that they um, have a lot of science that, you know, is, it's not complicated. Like, they explain things in a way that I think anybody can understand, um, and you can dive as deep as you want to. Mm. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of, like, resources online um, that try to, that, you know, are, are being written by physicians, right? So look at who's writing them. Um, you know, there are going to be lots of random health coaches or bloggers or people out there that are just going to be talking based off of their own experience or based on whatever. So you want to look at the credentials of who's writing these articles. Um, For fertility, um, our society, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, has a patient-oriented other half to its website that's called reproductivefacts.org. and so same thing, you know, with that. And then, as I Mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, many of us are, many of us physicians are on, on social media trying to reach people. And so, for example, one of my good friends is an adolescent, um, pediatrician, um, adolescent medicine specialist. And, you know, she, um, has a great following on Instagram because she's sharing stuff that is just so relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think is, is really like hitting a nerve with, you know, with teenagers, with parents of teenagers, etc. And so I think, um, you know, I think that although social media gets a bad rep, um, there are, <sighs> there are ways that it can really, um, let us access things that historically we haven't been able to.
0: Dr. Kudesia helps make reproductive health information more readily available through using social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. She makes really great informative videos and posts. You can follow her on Instagram at rkudesia, that is R-K-U-D-E-S-I-A. To segue yeah. in kind of what you were saying about contraception and birth control, I know that... Um, You being a reproductive endocrinologist, people might not necessarily put together like birth control and fertility um, being intertwined, but what are some common misconceptions you hear surrounding birth control and fertility?
1: Yeah, so I mean, so you're, you're totally right. I mean, obviously, both relate to the reproductive hormones, so both are part of our training. And um, I am actually also the medical director for Simple Health, which is a um, women's health telemedicine company um, that, among other things, um, is really focused on birth control and birth control education. Okay. Um, and so, you know, um, so it's kind of something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, and, you know, basically, you know, the, the good news is that You know, birth control, you know, basically hormonal birth control, the way that it works essentially is by providing the body with estrogen and progesterone, typically both. Um, the, those are the hormones that usually the ovaries make. And so by mm-hmm. providing the body with ovarian hormones, um, it essentially, you know, allows the ovaries to rest. It sort of tells the brain, hey, you don't have to keep stimulating the ovaries. Um, and so we typically don't ovulate and therefore we get this effective contraception uh, impact where we're not ovulating, we're not releasing an egg and so we don't get pregnant. Um, and there is more complicated than that, but that's the simple, simple version. Mm-hmm. And so um, when it comes to Time to discontinue birth control and think about fertility, for most types of birth control, um, within three months or less, um, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit longer than that, but for the vast majority within three months, um, they'll kind of return to whatever their menstrual cycle was going to be or otherwise would have been. Um, and so the effects um, as relate to suppressing uh, ovulation as relates to um, kind of causing the ovaries to look small and inactive are all temporary things. And, um, you know, I think where birth control gets kind of a bad reputation is that people um, are on it for decades at a time. And so their body changes. And then when they come off of it, um, you know, they see associated changes due to age, changes in health, changes in weight, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, changes in lifestyle. And then they associate those changes to the birth control rather than to all of the other factors that have changed in their life. Mm. Um, And also, I see a lot of women, for example, we talked about about PCOS so a lot of women that are just put on birth control for PCOS without you know ever being explained or getting a diagnosis of anything and so then of course when they come off of it try to get pregnant if they were never even told they have PCOS now they're super confused about what's going on with their cycle and you know again there's a big delay in care so mm. I think those are some of the ways in which birth control really gets a bad reputation and um you know, kind of has these misconceptions floating around that it somehow is bad for your fertility. Um, but otherwise, you know, in in many ways it can actually protect your fertility. If for example, you have, um, endometriosis or fibroids or other things, um, that birth control actually prevents the progression of um, or slows down the progression of. So, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. But on the whole, there's really no long-term side effects uh, or no long-term um, negative impact of birth control on fertility unless it just allows you to kind of uh, have time continue to pass you know, without noticing mm. the changes that you would otherwise see um, in your cycle if you were off of contraception, right? Mm. So sometimes I see women come in and they're, you know, 43 um, and they just came off of birth control and they're they're telling me, well, my cycle hasn't changed at all. I you know I have um, exactly the same as when I was 25, but, you know, the more they come off the birth control and see now what their new pattern is, they're going to find that it probably is different than when they were 25. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, sometimes, um, you know, being on a programmed cycle from the birth control can sort of hide um, the impact of time. And Mm. I think that's really the only way that, um, you know, you're going to see a negative impact.
0: Speaking of birth control, Dr. Kudesia is also the medical advisor for Simple Health, which is a company that helps provide access to birth control for all women by providing online birth control prescriptions and free home delivery. I'm not sponsored by Simple Health, although shout out, I would love to be, but um, Simple Health is a really great company that you can find just do a quick google search simple health and get that birth control at home and kind of segueing into like we were talking about hormones and one thing that I would love to discuss with you is lgbtq fertility do you see a lot of stigma in that area of your work and um yeah just like if you could just tell me a little bit more about that like Maybe the lack of awareness in LGBTQ fertility or like, yeah, what the stigma and um, advances now are like, like how healthcare has changed to, you know, help LGBTQ couples become, you know, fertile or have a child in some way.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, I mean, I think so uh, for us um, at CCRM, my practice nationally, we are partners with the Family Equality Council, um, which is, you know, a big um, uh, advocate um, for, you know, LGBT families and, um, you know, one of the statistics that I heard at an event, um, organized by, by the Family Equality Council was, um, around the percentage of young, um, LGBT millennials, um, that expected that they would have a family in the future. And it was, you know, more than half. And that was something, I mean, it was a, it was a, um, substantial majority, um, that expect that they will you know grow a family one day. And that's just really cool because, um, you know, things have really changed. I think if you talk Mm -hmm. to, you know, for example, you know, gay men that are 20 versus gay men that are 50, um, you know, the um, sort of the way that having a family is perceived of, you know, nowadays it's like, okay, sure. If I wanted to have that, I could probably um, figure out how to do it. Um, You know, it's it's just a very different mentality than it used to be, which is great. Um, You know, everybody should be able to build their family in the ways that they choose to. The, the, the difficulty is that some of the options that are available are quite expensive, and so it really circles back to access to care. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, for gay dads, you know, that is one of the most expensive options because it does require um, an egg donor, and then as, as well as a gestational carrier, somebody to carry the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think cost is the biggest barrier there, unfortunately. For like example, for our lesbian couples, you know, the treatment can be much more simple. It might be as simple as a donor sperm insemination for the partner that intends to carry the pregnancy, um, and so that you know is definitely um, can be much more affordable. Um, for my transgender patients, you know, many of them are thinking about freezing eggs prior to gender uh, affirming treatment, whether it's medical or surgical, um, and you know that uh, is definitely a possibility too. But again, you know, oftentimes cost becomes a barrier. Um, so I think that you know in general, if you asked, you know, young LGBT individuals, you know, how many of them intend or hope to have a family, I think it would be a substantial portion. Um, And I think, you know, the vast majority of physicians I hope are are supportive. I know that there are some that, you know, kind of, um, you know, don't necessarily take care of all patients, which is really sad. But mm-hmm. I think that, you know, for individuals that are looking to, you know, seek care, for example, on my website, I, I specifically call out that, you know, um, LGBT fertility is an area of interest for me because I want people to feel welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've put a lot of effort into trying to make our paperwork feel friendly, um, into making sure that everybody in the office feels comfortable with using, you know, appropriate pronouns, you know, as expressed by the patient, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, we, we do our best and, and I think that, um, you know, I think that it's a friendlier environment than it was, you know, in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, there's still, there's still a lot of room for improvement, um, primarily, like I said, around, um, access and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. as related to cost issues.
0: And actually kind of going off of, you know, like access to care um, in like a health policy perspective, I saw that, you know, you're really passionate about health policy and um, that's something that I assume in like my limited knowledge would impact, you know, everyone, but especially LGBTQ couples. I'm sure that um, there's a lot of policy changes that can be made that would give more adequate access to care and um, make it more affordable. But um, in your career as a doctor, what have you um, kind of done for health policy? I know you've had some really huge influence in that area. And what do you think, you know, I'm sure this is like a really vast and like question that you could or topic that you could talk about for a while and there's so many like nuances but what do you think still needs to be done from a policy perspective for women's health
1: Um, yeah, that is, that is such an important, but big question. So, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I definitely believe in kind of working to change the system and I've been very active within the American Medical Association um, and other kind of forms of organized medicine to try to affect that change. Um, I, uh, sit on the delegation for my professional societies, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Um, And have on and off been on that delegation um, to the American Medical Association since I was a resident um, trainee in OBGYN. And that's kind of been a great education for me and kind of how health policy and health. Um, advocacy can, you know, make a difference. Um, you know, believe it or not, it was just a few years ago that we passed policy that established that in the United States, infertility is considered a disease. And wow. I mean, that was literally something that I had the honor of testifying towards just, I think, two years ago. Um, oh and my so, God. You know, I, yeah. I didn't realize it was so and recent.
0: So,
1: yeah. I mean, prior to that, you know, it was really the World Health Organization had made a statement to that effect years ago, but in, you know, any sort of body that was specific to the United States, it had never been, um, kind of affirmed and, um, you know, it was kind of interesting, and I think it goes to your other question about what still needs to be done, because that being said, you know, there were, overwhelmingly, the the support was there, um, which was really exciting, because we were kind of nervous, but overwhelmingly, the support was there, but nonetheless, there were those, there are still those that, um, you know, think that, you know, fertility is not something that's like, a it's a lifestyle choice, you know, Mm -hmm. that uh, they kind of have this misconception that, oh, you know, fertility is just people that waited too long to, have children or, you know, have alternative lifestyles or, you know, these other pejorative terms that you hear. Um, and that is totally untrue. Um, and so, um, you know, I I think, you know, it does amaze me that, um, that people still have those views and then you know also that you know women's health care is not a zero-sum game so I had you know other advocates tell me like why are you wasting your time on fertility there's so many other more important uh, women's health issues to address and um, mm. you know not only is that a repudiation of everything that I do in my day-to-day not only does it ignore the fact that from a scientific perspective it's been demonstrated time and again that infertility diagnosis is just as deleterious to quality of life as getting a diagnosis of cancer or other serious medical issues. Mm. Um, But, you know, it kind of has this underlying assumption that there's only a certain amount of resources that can go to women's health. and So we have to focus on, you know, certain things at the expense of others. And I just think that's a faulty way of viewing the system. Like we can expand, um, you know, what, um, you know, what reproductive health care looks like in this country. I I think it's kind of like a rising tide raises all ships or however that (laughs) phrase um, you know, I think that, you know, whatever, whatever the phrase is, but you know what I mean? You know, the Mm -hmm. idea that like, you know, Mm -hmm better understanding and better acceptance of reproductive health care as just part and parcel of health care um, and moving towards a health care system of wellness rather than of illness mm-hmm. um, are you know the kinds of things in my mind on a very large macro level that can advance the health for all women so um, you know what that looks like is expanding access to care expanding insurance um, you know sort of alleviating the burden on physicians to do all of these prior authorizations and things that kind of prevent people from getting, you know, appropriate timely care, um, you know, helping people access a full range of reproductive options of high quality fertility counseling. Um, you know, these are all things that um, can make a big difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
1: And obviously, the depoliticization uh, of women's health care, I think that goes without mm-hmm. saying, um, you know, that it shouldn't be a political issue, what, you know, what we discuss in the office and, and you know who's paying for
0: what Mm -hmm. what advice would you give to women or you know people or like what what do you think people need to know like what would you like to share with people if it hasn't already been said
1: yeah so I think you know the best advice I can give um you know yes for women but for people in general is uh to echo what I said before which is really to just remember to be yourself as the keeper and the advocate of your own health, um, and to really, you know, kind of, um, approach your health proactively. Um, and so that, that means, you know, going to regular, you know, doctor's visits, that means looking at your lifestyle, um, and trying to be proactive about, you know, eating well, looking at whole foods rather than processed foods,
0: If it sounds like Dr. Kudesia was in the middle of a sentence, it is because she was. I am currently living in Texas and I was recording and my phone turned off because it overheated in the Texas sun. The sun is absolutely no joke. The heat is no joke. We were in the middle of Dr. Kudasia's response to my last question and thank God it was the last question but still she was saying you know what your body needs and you know take the steps to live a healthy and active lifestyle to not only you know, just be a healthy and active person, but also to take preventative measures to ensure that you may live longer or you may not have to experience health complications due to obesity, unhealthy eating, such things like that. But, um, I truly apologize. I wish more than anything that my phone did not just randomly overheat and turn off, but it did. And, you know, stay safe out there, wear sunscreen, you know, get in some shade. I learned the hard way. I am so grateful to have had Dr. Rashmi Kudasia on the podcast. You can find her on Instagram at rkudesia, that is r-k-u-d-e-s-i-a at Instagram, and um, follow some of the wonderful doctors that she tags for more free and very useful, informative information. One thing I never say but am realizing how important it is is that please, please leave Womanhood Podcast a review if you are enjoying it. I would be so incredibly grateful, wherever you listen to podcasts, if you subscribed and left a review. I think it would be so cool if everyone left a review telling us why you enjoyed the podcast or if this has impacted your life in any way. You can tell us if you shared the podcast with any of your pals or if it has inspired you to do anything great from hearing all these wonderful women's stories. Um, I'd love to read those reviews and hear what you think. So please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. Also, please follow us on social media. I am on Instagram at womanhood underscore podcast, on Twitter at womanhood podca1, that's womanhood podcast one and Facebook at womanhood podcast. Thank you so much for listening. was created and produced by Mimi Healy with original sound design by Matthew Peary. If you have been inspired by any of this information and would like a cause to donate to to help people of color and the maternal mortality rate. I am actually running a 5k and fundraising for it through Every Mother Counts. All of the proceeds will be going to Every Mother Counts and Birth Justice, and you can find that fundraising page at the link in Womanhood Podcast's Instagram bio. Thank you so much for donating.